0: Maybe Virgil's not such a great theological thinker after all. Maybe Virgil's not a scholastic. He thinks he's recorded a great map of hell, but there are problems. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast in which, you know, we slow walk through the comedy. And here we are. We are at the back of Inferno Canto 11. We have stopped because of the stink of the abyss, the final three circles of hell below us. And Virgil has outlined for us, perhaps, an entire map of what is to come on the journey ahead, so that when we see it, we'll know it. It seems like it should do the trick, but it doesn't. In the back half of this Canto eleven of Inferno, our pilgrim has two questions for his teacher, Virgil. This episode is about the first one, Canto eleven. Lines sixty seven through ninety. And I, Master, your reasoning leads to a lot of clarity and categorizes well this hole and the people held in it. But tell me the souls in the oily swamp, and those lashed about by the wind, and those battered by the rain, and those who bash into each other with such harsh words, Why are they not punished in this smoldering city if God's wrath is indeed on them? And if not, why are they put under such affliction? And he said to me, Why does your genius wander off like this? Where does your mind get off to? Don't you remember the words with which your ethics fully explicates the three dispositions that heaven rejects? Incontinence? malice and insane bestiality and how incontinence offends god less and so comes in for less blame if you reason well through this line of thought and bring back to your mind those who are punished up there outside of these fortifications you'll surely see why those are put aside from these other sinners, and why the divine vendetta Strikes them less cruelly than those down there. That's the first question and Virgil's first seemingly irritated answer to our pilgrim. After all, Virgil has said he is going to show through clear reasoning what lies below them. I guess the reasoning wasn't terribly clear because the pilgrim has questions. And so, like sticking your fingers into the tiger's cage, the pilgrim proceeds. In this episode, I want to take it in four pieces, three pieces about this passage, and then a longer fourth point about Virgil's notions of sin or Dante the poet's notions of sin. So let's just start at the top with the first bit. We start off with the Pilgrim's question. And I, Master, your reasoning leads to a lot of clarity and categorizes well this hole and the people held in it. Notice two things. One, our Pilgrim starts with flattery, so he must know the tiger's a little dangerous in the in the cage in front of him. But two, notice our Pilgrim. Pilgrim doesn't miss the scholastic reasoning that's going on here. Your reasoning leads to a lot of clarity and categorizes well, makes distinctions, makes makes markers inside of a larger territory. Our pilgrim knows this is scholastic thought and then he goes on and he kind of winds into his question by winding us back through the circles up above us and this is a nice little bit on the poet's part we've come to this place where we've stopped we're kind of held here for a minute because of the stink of the abyss and because the poet wants to um lime out what's ahead he wants to show us the road ahead I think because at this point we're ready for a map of Inferno. And it's nice, the poet backs up in the pilgrim's mouth and kind of tells us who Remember those guys up there? The souls in the oily swamp, that is sticks. Those lashed about by the wind, those battered by the rain, those who bash into each other with such harsh words, kind of pulling back all the way up through the circles. I mean, souls in the oily swamp, that's the angry and sticks. as I said. Lashed about by the wind, there's Francesca and Paolo and all the figures upon the wind, battered by the rain. There's Chaco and the gluttons, those who bash into each other with such harsh words. There's all the cleric and popes and cardinals rolling those rocks around. Nice. We have a little review just in case we didn't know where we were. And the pilgrim says, and why are they not punished in this smoldering city if God's wrath is indeed on them? And if not, why are they put under such affliction? So the question is really geographical. It's really going to be about what, wait a minute, now let's stop here and say, if hell is a city and we've crossed through the walls of this, how come people live out in the countryside? How come not everybody's inside the city? If this is an urban environment, why doesn't it encompass all that is there? Partly what's going on here is there is a misreading of an earlier bit, apparently, from the pilgrim. Remember, back in lines 20 through through 24, Virgil explained the rationale of the road ahead. Let me remind you the passage. Injustice is the finish line of every evil that picks up the hatred of heaven, and the end of it all, whether by force or by fraud, is to hurt someone else. The Pilgrim has apparently come Think that God is only interested in punishing malicia, malice. And because of the way that that was phrased earlier, the pilgrim is thinking, well, wait a minute, if malice, malicia, is that which comes under the hatred of heaven, what about all those other guys up top? And honestly, it seems like a fine question. And we could say that Virgil overstated it about malice or that he wasn't completely clear in how he stated it, or that this is just a bit of reasoning that needs a little more thinking through. How is it that certain souls exist outside of the walls of Dis? That's our question and the first point. Let's move on to the second point. When our pilgrim lists off those above, it's very intriguing what he does. He basically gives us a structuring device the souls in the oily swamp, those lashed by the wind, those battered by the rain, those who bash into each other with such harsh words. If you think about those circles, they are set up on the four basic elements. There is the air, the wind of the lustful. There is water. There is the rain on the gluttons. There is earth. There are the boulders being run around by the avaricious and the prodigal. And then when it comes to the oily swamp, there are fires signaling each other from those towers. So we have air, rain, earth, fire, all four of the basic known elements that make up matter. You can push this from the four elements to the four states of matter, hot, cold, wet, dry, and the four bodily humors phlegm, blood, yellow bile, and black bile. You can build an entire structure on top of this using the four humors, the four states of matter, the four elemental pieces of matter. Limbo, of course, has been left out of this list. We'll talk more about that in a bit. But limbo's left out, not even to mention the neutrals. But still, there apparently were structural devices running around that we weren't even noticing underneath the palm, which is kind of fascinating. The tells you something about the kind of architecture that this poem actually is. Okay, let's pass on to Virgil's answer. Virgil's answer begins, why does your genius wander off like this? And notice he uses that word genius. Remember that word has come up. It was in Cavalcante's mouth. Virgil was standing over there to the side. Cavalcante got up on his knees, stuck his chin over the edge of the tomb, and said, does your genius lead you on this journey, as it were? You know, a rough, (laughs) very rough idea of what he said. But notice he poked at Dante's genius right there. And Virgil heard that standing over there. Is this a little bit of a tweak from Virgil? Is this picking up Cavalcante's word and saying, "Yeah." such genius. How come you can't figure this one out? If so, Virgil is very irritated by bringing up this word genius. I should tell you that the word, the verb there, wander off. Boccaccio claims that the Florentine verb used there is a farming metaphor for when a plow deviates or skips out of the furrow that it's building. So if a plow is going down the field and making a furrow, when it accidentally skips out, maybe it hits a rock or something, right, and it skips over one or it skips out of the furrow it's making, that's that verb. That's the farming metaphor that's being used here. And when Virgil says, why does your genius, you could say, skip a furrow or wander off the furrow that you're plowing. I translated it much more simply. Why does your genius wander off like this? But the idea there is kind of this really rustic verb stuck up against the word genius, You should think about that for a minute because genius is a high-level poetic intellectual word. And then here's this farming metaphor being used. Is this ways that Virgil is tweaking or irritating or poking at the pilgrim? And maybe the poet in the background too, not just the pilgrim. Virgil says, Where does your mind get off to? Don't you remember the words with which your ethics fully explicates the three dispositions that heaven rejects? Okay, he's talking about the Nicomachean ethics of Aristotle. He's actually, if you want to go look it up, he's in book seven, chapters five to eight. He's talking about those offenses and how offenses, Aristotle, so the offenses and how they're categorized. But what I'm really focused on is don't you remember the words? Dante is on the run. Where is he going to look up the words from the ethics? And this seems to be a particularly mean jab, at least to my eyes, out of Virgil. Don't you remember the words with which your ethics fully explicates? Well, let me go look it up given that I'm on the run, given that I'm running for my life and living in complete exile and that anyone who finds me can drag me back to Florence and I can be put to death. This seems to me that Virgil is really poking at the pilgrim and maybe at the poet in the background or the poet is using Virgil as a way to nudge, poke, irritate both the pilgrim And maybe the poet himself. Fascinating bit of psychological problematics going on here. Fascinating bit of masochistic, sadomasochistic bits going on underneath this in Virgil's peak, in his anger. All very wild and weird. So... He, he says to him, yeah, what's wrong with you that you can't quote Book seven, chapters five to eight of the Nicomachean Ethics and remember the three dispositions that heaven rejects? And here they come. And this is the big one. Incontinence, malice and insane bestiality. I'm going to leave those three aside for the fourth part of this episode. That's what we're coming back to. And we're just going to pass on and how incontinence offends Godless, and so comes in for less blame. Again, we're skipping on. If you reason well through this line of thought and bring back to your mind those who are punished up there, outside of these fortifications, that's the incontinent, the people who can't keep their desires in check, you'll surely see why those are put aside from these other sinners and why the divine, and this is where I'm coming to, vendetta, that's the word used why the divine vendetta strikes them less cruelly than those down there. I have made a great deal about vendetta so far, and I'm about to make a great deal more in the cantos ahead about the notion of vendetta and shame and the cycles of violence and shame. But apparently there is one entity who can hold a vendetta and that according to the poem is God, the divine has a vendetta. And the divine can work out that vendetta. And the reason it won't cycle, the reason that cycle of vendetta and shame and violence and shame and violence and shame won't work with the divine is because you can't touch the divine. You can't harm the divine. You can't hurt God in Christian theology. You can't harm God. This is not Greco-Roman gods, which can sprain their ankles or twist their wrists and all that stuff. Instead, you can't get any handle on God. And so if God has a vendetta, it leads to no cycling of violence and shame. Instead, that's justice working itself out. And as it says, cruelly, because those below us are punished more cruelly. Let's go back to those categories of sin. Incontinence, malice, and insane bestiality. This is picked up Again, from Aristotle, from the Nicomachean Ethics. I should tell you that the word for malice or vice is actually a mistranslation from Aristotle. But everybody in the Middle Ages made this mistranslation. Aristotle means vice. Malice has a little more will behind it. And the Latin word used and the translation for Aristotle adds that notion of kind of will behind Aristotle's more generic term, which means something like vice. But again, I don't think this is an intentional misrepresentation in the text of Aristotle's categories. Rather, this is the same mistake everybody makes in the Middle Ages. And And I think Dante's just making it because that's the mistake made in the translation of Aristotle. But there are so many things to pick up. From what we just saw, incontinence, malice, and insane bestiality, and how incontinence offends God less, Virgil says, and so comes in for less blame. Notice one, the change. We have come over a giant change from the actions of an individual to a habitual state. It was before, as we were coming down the circles, people were being condemned because of their actions, because Francesca and Paolo read an Arthurian romance and slipped into fornication together and therefore slipped into their current circle way up there with the lustful. People committed acts that in, that put them in certain places. Dido, again, all these characters up above us, uh, Filippo, Gente, the committed acts that put them where they are now, with incontinence, malice and insane bestiality, we seem to be talking about a state, a habitual state of being. It's not that mm, you're occasionally incontinent and you're occasionally not. It's such a weird word to use in the modern world. It's something that occasionally you can't keep your desires in check and occasionally you can. It's that that's the tenor of your being. Incontinence malice, and insane bestiality. It's a change from action to being as the nature of the offense. In Aristotle, this is my second point, many of those examples of insane bestiality that he offers in the Nicomachean Ethics involve cannibalism. And in fact, we are going to find out that in the ninth circle, way down at the bottom, there is cannibalism going on. And remember, Earlier, in just a previous passage to this, Virgil said that in the lowest circle, those who commit treachery are consumed. And I said, well, they're not all consumed. No, they're not. Three in particular are eternally consumed. But there's also, mm, we're going to find out, down there in the ninth circle, an act of cannibalism going on. So it seems like that Aristotelian notion that the final crazy, the lowest place you can sink as a human is cannibalism, is riding under this in this list, and I think we're gonna see it play out. Third point is that Virgil uses the word God, and how incontinence offends God? It's just that way in the Florentine. This tells us again, there is slippage in the character of Virgil. Earlier on, way back in Canto One, Virgil couldn't even bring himself to name who sits up on the throne on high up in the Empyrean. Now, well, the words of God just slip right on out. Virgil is the most problematic character in comedy, without doubt. Okay. Look also at this. We've got these three things, incontinence, malice, and insane bestiality. Remember, I was just talking about Canto 1, and Virgil couldn't bring himself to name God back there. Well, remember, there are three beasts in Canto 1. There's the lion, the leopard, and the she-wolf. And remember, I told you that there's going to come a later passage in which some people interpret those three beasts as incontinence, malice, and bestiality. Here you go this is the passage, this is where they get it from, right here, they look back that to those beasts sitting on that hill, and they say, oh, three beasts, here's three levels of sin, those who can't keep their desires in check, malice, and bestiality, I suppose we could say bestiality is that ravening she-wolf back there, it's hard to say whether the lion or the leopard are incontinence and malice, it's it's hard to pin it down, and I actually don't buy that this is the explanation for those beasts but this is where many commentators get it let's pass on and say when we go down now into the circles of force and fraud what are we actually hitting when we get down there and it's actually tough to say and believe it or not this line might seem super easy to you you might say Well, incontinence, that's those people up there at the top, the gluttons, the lustful, the avaricious, the angry, Circle Five. I mean, right, those are those people up there. Malice, well, that's got to be the violence we're about to see. And insane bestiality, that's that's yet further the fraud. And it seems like that's obvious to you, perhaps, and to me, too. But let me just tell you that this line has come in for so much commentary over the centuries as to exactly who as being punished for insane bestiality, and many commentators believe that the insane bestiality refers to the violent who were are about to encounter starting in Canto Twelve, in Circle Seven, in Canto Twelve we're about to encounter them, and the reason why is because there are so many references to bestiality. In Canto 12. And given that there are so many references to bestiality in Canto 12, and furthermore, we're about to meet some hybrid human animal creatures down here in hell, given all of that, a lot of people say, oh, insane bestiality, that's the violent. It's not for me. For me, it seems like incontinence is the upper bit malice then comes with the violent and insane bestiality are the sins of fraud but it is not obvious to most commentators and the reason it's not obvious is because they ask well where in the world is heresy and where in the world is limbo not to mention the neutrals. Where in the world do they fit? Is heresy a sin of malice? After all, we've crossed into the walls of this. It can't be an in, uh, a sin of insane bestiality, can it? And it's certainly not just a matter of incontinence about keeping your desires in check. So where does heresy fit? And while we're at it, where does limbo fit? Do those people in limbo, are they being accused of, a, of an incontinent nature that they can't keep their desires in check? That doesn't seem right. And Here's another bit. Remember back up amongst the lustful, we had all the, you know, the, the kind of um, uh, exemplars of lust floating up there on the wind before Francesca and Paolo came down, remember? And the first one on that they noticed on the wind was Semiramis. And I told you this Semiramis is a this Assyrian queen who basically changed the laws so that she could commit incest, so that her incest would be legal. It was all the licit, legit play of words. Remember all this back then? Okay, great. That's fine. Semarima seems way out of incontinence. Incontinence is that you know, yeah, there's a there's a cherry pie on the counter and you've already had a piece, and uh, I just want more. and so you end up standing there at the counter eating the whole cherry pie. and so now you've you've let your desires run out of check and you're a glutton and yada, yada, yada. Changing the laws so that you can commit incest doesn't seem like a sin of incontinence, even though she is punished amongst the lustful. This brings us to the big problem. Despite Virgil's peak, his explanation of hell raises more questions then it answers. But this is not an example of Virgil as an untrustworthy guide, as a few modern critics claim. And I will confess to you, when I first was taught the comedy, I was shown this passage as an example that Virgil is not the fully trustworthy guide because there's slippage in his explanation, like Semiramis. There's slippage in his explanation, and so he's not a fully trustworthy guide. Buy that anymore. It is not, or it's not necessarily a problem in the poem either. Rather, it's a problem with scholastic reasoning. Scholastic reasoning is such that these kind of problems, well, what of semiremis? They become endemic to the whole reasoning category itself. Let me give you an example of this. In Italy, in Dante's day, and later than Dante's day, people were bitten by a certain kind of spider. <laughs> it was a rather large spider, not grotesquely large, but a rather large spider, especially around the Italian town of Taranto. They were bitten by these spiders and everybody knows, right? Everybody knows that, A, spiders arise from putrescence. Didn't you know that? They don't lay eggs. What? what? I can't see any eggs. I, I, I see some putrescence out here, some stinking meat, and there's a spider crawling around near it. I'm never thinking that it's picking off things that are feeding on that meat. No, I'm saying, oh, look, rotting meat, spider spiders arise from putrescence and furthermore they derive their venom from the air because when I look at them they don't have a stinger on them really so how does it that a spider hurts me well they clearly derive this venom out of the air oh okay Great. And you know what? These people who are bitten by this spider, sometimes when you play really fast music, really hurdy-gurdy rhythmical music, they start dancing like crazy. They start dancing around kind of like spiders and we know because you can feel it if you touch a drum or you know because if you're near a trumpet you can tell you know that sound travels through the air well since sound travels through the air and spiders derive their venom from the air this must be connected and there must be a way in which playing this song brings out the venom in the spider playing this yes you know what it is playing this tarantella. ...brings out the venom of the tarantula. And that's how it all works, right? No, of course not. Because what I just did for you is an entire argument based solely on deduction based solely on deducing certain principles and then figuring out what happens from there. And this is the entire problem with scholastic reasoning. And this is why I can pick at this passage and say, wait a minute, what's incontinence? And wait, wait, what about Simaramus? And wait a minute, which ones are the ones consumed? And who's who And all this? Why? Because here's why. You take a set of propositions and then you divide them into more and more and more and slower and slower and slower and smaller and smaller. And smaller little bits until you finally end up at some kind of categorization and inevitably things are going to slip out of your categories they're not going to hold into place where you need them to be this is pre-scientific thought and pre-scientific thought will never work on induction the way you want to work on inductive reasoning now a child of the enlightenment of rationalization of the scientific revolution and so All of this is based on finding a series of principles in the ethics, in Aristotle. When do we get to the next question the pilgrim asks in the next episode? Finding a series of principles and then deducing down from them. And by deducing down, your only question is how. You can't ask what, you can't ask why, because you're arguing from a set of propositions. You can only ask how, how does the music in the air work to pull out the venom? Oh, well, that's because they're both in the air and air is attracted to air because there's no such thing as gravity. Then things are only attracted to their like, So it explains why water flows downhill. It's trying to get to its like, to the ocean, like attracts like so air attracts air so the venom is pulled out by the music which is in the air see it all makes perfect sense right no of course it doesn't because it's solely deductive reasoning and deductive reasoning maybe take this home and take it to the bank deductive reasoning always will lead you to the moment in which you're blind to the things that don't fit your categories. Because the categories, the propositions, the way that you've uh, set up the world is more important than the details. (laughs) And the details are called the scientific revolution. (laughs) Noticing those details are what, in fact, makes the modern world the modern world. But here, right here, in this passage, for once, we can say we are not on the cusp of the modern world. We are in the medieval world. We're, we're squarely there, and it squarely has to operate this way. Despite Virgil's emotional mm, outburst of anger, despite the Pilgrim's flattery of Virgil, you can see right here, we have not stepped into the Renaissance. We're still in the Middle Ages. Our Pilgrim has got one more question for Virgil about his map of hell before they finally descended the island, so come back. Come back next time catch this second question because it's wilder than this one we're gonna not just worry about incontinence malice and insane bestiality we're gonna actually try to figure out why usurers are put where usurers are put it's an incredibly wild argument that happens and something that blows out even beyond the confines of canto 11 and the map of hell so subscribe like this podcast walk right down there to the bottom of the apple page and there's a way to write a comment write a comment there connect with me on twitter under the hashtag walking with dante or on instagram Any way you want to connect with me the facebook group walking with dante i'm having fabulous conversations with people in twitter messages in people in instagram messages people who hashtag with walking with dante come back there is so much more before we finally set off on our journey again